Hi, uh, this is Zach Berger on my podcast, Shalom's Bias, Medicine and Other Curiosities, where I talk with people about things that interest me and them. And uh, today I'm very happy to have um, Nathaniel Comfort. He is the he is a professor at the Institute of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins. And he's also uh, currently the NASA Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology at the Library of Congress. So uh, thanks very much, Nathaniel, for taking the time to, to talk today. So um, I, I have some some questions that I'd like to ask you about your your, your interest and and uh, your 2012 book, The Science of Human Perfection: How Genes Became the Heart of American Medicine, is is quite relevant to to uh, what I see every day in taking care of patients and to many people's experience um, of their health. But I want to ask first about your title, uh, Chair of Astrobiology. Could you talk about that a little bit and what that's all about? Yes. Uh, so. A number of years ago, uh, the Nobel laureate physician uh, Baruch Blumberg endowed this uh, chair here at the Library of Congress, uh, funded by NASA, in astrobiology. And uh, that's a pretty far cry from the uh, history of medical genetics, but I uh, applied to this position with a proposal for current book project, which does connect the two, and that is a biography of DNA. And uh, so I'm going to be looking at the history, the scientific and cultural history of the molecule of DNA, um, looking at it first as a natural object, uh, then as a scientific object, then as a cultural object, and finally, as an artificial object. That's great. I think that's 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 fascinating to to hear about and um, the the multiple dimensions attached to one one very short acronym. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, and I think so, it. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. I was just going to say that the the link here is the is primarily the first chapter, which is um, looking at where DNA came from in evolution and how we came to understand it that way. So I'm looking at the recent advances since the Genome Project, roughly, uh, in origin of life research. And origin of life on Earth is considered part of the science of astrobiology. So they were interested enough in that project that uh, they were kind enough to give me this uh, wonderful fellowship. That's great. And I look forward to reading it because I know when I, the last I read anything significant about origins of life and, and the research, um, I'm going to say what I'm, what I'm sure everyone says to you, which is, you know, I learned in college about the primordial soup, which I'm, and I know the science has moved on since then. Um, That's right. Exactly. I mean, basically the primordial soup is, is, has been thrown out with the bathwater. Right. Right. Um, so, so I want to, so I think, but I think this new book project of yours is, is of a piece with your previous work um, about the history of genomics and how, and how um, it's really the, the good and the ill or the, the eugenics and the, the, and the, the population health improvement, the, the, all the strains of genomics and medicine have become really inextricably linked. Um, and so I wanted to ask you how that plays out um, these days with the concept of precision, precision medicine, and to those who are listening who don't know what that is, uh, precision medicine um, is uh, very variably defined. But I think one definition that has some currency is that it's it's using 
predominantly genetic techniques to get at individual variation and thereby theoretically to tailor in an individual way medical treatments to to that to that person based on their genetic profile um mm -hmm. so so i i mean just the the definition itself is you know can be unpacked in, in various ways but i wonder you know you, you one thing you said in your when you were when in the, in the statement from nasa about the astrobiology chair was that geno genomics has transformed a number of realms of thought i'm paraphrasing but i wonder whether precision medicine is just a genomics redressed or there's something new about it um, that, that, that that as it appears to you uh, so your question is how how has genomics uh, changed or transformed these sorts of individualized approaches to medicine yeah because I think the claims yeah. made for precision medicine is that it's an individual thing that, that, that we're going to find out people's uh, individual genetic profile and we're going to right so, so, so uh, you know, at the same time, it seems like it's got individual objectives to make the individual person healthier. But um, at the same time, we're, the, the claims made for it are, are about population, diseases of population import. Like we're going to make your diabetes better because it's different for you. We're going to make your heart disease better because it's different for you. Um, right. and, and so both these things coming together, I, I think, were reflected in, in, in your book about, about the, the, the various influences on genomics. Yes, right. So uh, precision medicine, only a few years ago, was usually referred to as personalized medicine. Uh, and that was a term that really gained currency uh, right around the turn of the millennium uh, with the Human Genome Project. And you started to see the increasing use of the term personalized medicine in the mid to late 90s. And then it really exploded uh, after 2000. And only in the last four or five years or so has it really begun to shift uh, to the term precision medicine, um, which obviously uh, has a kind of a nice scientific connotation of, of, of sort of surgical strike or something. Right, right. Uh, 
genetic variation and what it could tell you both about disease and about health. The, the, dia the diathesis, is that right? Is that... That's right. So, exactly. The diathesis, it's a, so you can trace that back further, and I have done that. The, he was picking up on a very, on a, a concept that had actually gone out of fashion in Garrett's day, uh, and that is the, 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 the concept of diathesis, which was a, an, a uh, had great actually the term that goes back to, to to Galen's time but it was very current in the 18th century but had gone out of fashion thanks to the, the germ theory of disease uh, and diathesis was a, a kind of described a constitutional predisposition toward a, same, a, a type of disease or a type of condition and the germ theorists thought that was all just uh, spooky stuff, but right. it was a way of just, you know, talking about something that you didn't really understand. Right. And I, 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 uh, I confess that, you know, before I started reading your work, the only memory I had of the word diathesis was in the phrase bleeding diathesis, um, right. which, you know, only hung around because of medical school. And I, I don't even think that phrase is an active form of vocabulary. If I were to talk about the same set of phenomena for a patient, I would talk about some, you know, I would use some other words, right? But I, that's sort of interesting that in, in my mind, it's, it's, it's just, just that word and I had to, I didn't even know what it, what it meant or it's historical. Um, it, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. And what Garrett did was to bring back that old, old fashioned term and overlay Mendelian genetics on it. And, and he wasn't all that interested in the, in the immediate, um, in the immediate health sequelae, or the, or or, uh, or of the Alcaptonuria that he wrote about, he didn't. Correct, not at first. Uh, in fact, what interested him most about Alcaptonuria was the fact that it appeared not to be a disease at all, and it indicated to him that you know, he said you know, he only detected this because of this this strange phenomenon of oxidation oxidation of the urine and it made him wonder how many other biochemical variants that uh, humans or animals might have that would go completely unnoticed and he said that there's you know think how many traits there are that we can identify physically in each other just by eye that don't really have any significant health consequences but but we can tell one person from another and he said maybe by extension, we are all also biochemically unique. Right, and and so so that's that's one strain talked about in, in your book, the, the the Garadian strain, and then you talked about uh, uh, Galton. Um, can you can you talk about that strain? Sure. Francis Galton was a half cousin of Charles Darwin, and uh, he but he had a very different uh, mental framework than his uh, than his cousin. He where Dal where Darwin basically spent his entire career solving one big problem, how species come about, Galton was a quantitative guy and he was constantly solving lots and lots of little problems. So he was uh, you know, he 
came up with all sorts of, he was an inventor. He invented um, modern weather maps, uh, the idea of a, a thermocline. Uh, he invented, um, he invented the, a, uh, underwater reading glasses. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, so things that were, uh, he invented linear regression. So everything from the very practical to what sounds kind of silly to us. Right. And um, in his, and, and one of those problems that he was trying to address was the wide, widespread belief at the time among uh, Victorian gentlemen that the Victorian gentleman was on the decline, that human species, that the human human populations in general were uh, were degrading, uh-huh. uh, and, and so this was known as degeneration theory. And the the French had uh, actually comes out of uh, French theory, but the, the English adopted it very wholeheartedly, uh, and as did the Germans, as we well know, and so forth. And um, so he thought of he, he thought that instead of leaving the poor and the infirm and the you know unintelligent and so forth to simply starve or kill each other off the way his his contemporary Herbert Spencer said they should do mm-hmm. uh, the father of social Darwinism. Mm-hmm. Dalton came up with a, what he thought was a, a, a much kinder, more humane plan, and that was to simply keep them from breeding in the first place. Right? And he thought by a series of incentives, tax breaks, and so forth, as well as educational programs, that you could teach people that the best, that society's best members ought to have more children and society's worst members ought to have fewer. And he believed that you would, um, that once people were educated and properly incentivized, they would just do this of their own free will. And that was the idea of eugenics. And and, and your point, I think, or one of your points in your book is that um, you can't point to, you can't slice off the eugenically influenced portion of genomics and say that was then. That was part of the 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 initial um, in, invention, or the, the the you know generations ago. That was part of part of the the family tree of, of genetics, and now we've moved past that. The, your point is that's that's part of the the, the drive on, um, that lies underneath much of genomics. Exactly right. Uh, Galton invented eugenics in the course of developing modern, or, or the, the basis of, of uh, modern population genetics and, uh, and statistical analysis. And, and I argue, and I think I show that, that the early, uh, so, so eugenics took on a whole new connotation after the rediscovery of Mendel's laws at the, uh, in 1900 and some of your listeners may be aware of the eugenics movement, particularly strong in the United States in the early 20th century, and it's you know, usually told as a horrific and dogmatic pseudoscience that wasn't based on any legitimate, uh, legitimate genetics and, and so forth, uh, and that um, when 
genetics disentangled itself from eugenics and and took a medical turn, then we finally had a, a legitimate human genetics based on uh, based on disease. And what I show is that first of all, eugenics always had a medical component. And second of all, that modern medical genetics and genomics still have a, uh, you can still see that eugenic thread running through it. That's not to say it is eugenics, but that rather that both eugenics and medical genetics have always been about two things, relief of suffering and human improvement. Right. And I, I wonder, you know, and I know uh, some historians, you know, it's, I think it's an appropriate reaction not to want to draw two uh, parallels that are too close between historical events and, and present day events, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. But so in a, in a lot of the discussions about genetics and its use in precision medicine, um, I, I see less talk about um, human improvement and about uh, helping the individual achieve goals that are consonant with, with healthcare metrics. That is to say, for example, we have a patient with an uh, irregular heart rhythm. And, and so the doctor might recommend that they be on an anticoagulation medication. But um, their genetic profile is such that they break down Coumadin in, in one way or, or, or another way. And so theoretically, that genetic test would enable the physician or whoever to prescribe them a medication that would that would work best for them. So that's not so much a improvement of the individual as able them enable them to reach a a predetermined health outcome. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely true. And uh, I would also point out that here in Washington, right across town at the National Academy of Sciences today is a, a summit on gene editing on CRISPR and other uh, other techniques that uh, where Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, and also uh, bioethicists and other scientists and various sorts of people are all talking about uh, these new highly potent and highly accurate methods of genetic engineering in terms of precision medicine and the kinds of uh, new medical therapies that they may uh, that they may make possible and concerns over eugenics and ways in which people might use this you know, should we allow CRISPR on human edit, uh, on human embryos should we allow it on the germ line or just in the somatic line right. and there's a lot of uh, hullabaloo about whether or not that's going to lead to the designer babies or 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 uh, inscribing uh, privilege into our very DNA and so forth. So again, I would say they're both still there. And I think even there's even a flip side to the to the case in which genetics is used to achieve let's say, broadly recognized or population-level health outcomes, which brings it closer to the eugenic strand, and that is some, an element that I think is missing from the precision medicine discussion. I don't know whether you think so, and that's these, these health outcomes are often determined 
without discussion with the patient about their preferences. So mm-hmm. it is yeah. it is clearly not the case that everybody with an with atrial fibrillation or an irregular heart rhythm needs to be on an anticoagulant. Um, right. So determining that you know if we can tweak this switch, even theoretically speaking, saying that's the case, saying we can tweak this switch and 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 tailor the medicine to the person presupposes that the person has decided already. Um, yes, right. And so you know, some of my colleagues, you know, historians and uh, particularly bioethicists, uh, mainly bioethicists tend to feel like they have to take one side or the other, either you know, are you for gene editing or against it or for personalized medicine or precision medicine or against it. Uh-huh. And you know, my view as a historian is it's not my job to say whether we should or should not do this, but rather, hey, this is happening. Yeah. What's the best way, you know, how can we understand it and guide it to make sure that we have the best, that we maximize the, the best outcomes and minimize the worst outcomes, right? And I think one of the ways we can do that, one of the ways that we can learn from, from experience is to, it, it, it is that, you know, that first of all, coercion is, is a bad idea, right? right. Uh, and second of all, uh, more subtly, but just as important, that coercion is complicated, right? That, um, you know, we might not be passing eugenic sterilization laws or, or, or eugenic gene editing laws or something like that, but that there are that, that if there is strong cultural or economic pressure to undergo one kind of therapy or not, uh, that that also can be a kind of coercion. Think about, you know, a good example would be uh, trisomy 21, Down syndrome, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which not too long ago, it was considered self-evident that you would want to get rid of it if you could. Right? Right, who, right. who would want to have, go through that kind of suffering and you know, live uh, so, so suboptimally? Well, it turns out that when you actually talk to people in the Down syndrome community and their families and friends and loved ones, uh, that, that in many cases, they absolutely, you know, the, 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 the Down patients themselves are very happy, loving individuals, and their families and friends wouldn't trade them for anyone, right? So, yes, education and and full consent are, I think, crucial for any of these kinds of diagnostic or therapeutic technologies. Yeah, and, and you know, or, or another example that comes to mind, um, not necessarily as closely related to, to genomics, but possibly in the future, is you know, thinking about uh, Zika virus infection and microcephaly, and, and how often does one see appreciated in, in, I think, in the lay media that microcephaly is, you know, is a condition with a spectrum, right? And there, and there are um, uh, there are babies that are more or less affected by it in various ways. Um, yeah. Um, so, so it's interesting that you, you know, that you say uh, you talk about your own role as a historian, not to advocate for one side or the other, but to to say what's happening now. And I think that's very interesting to think of historian as a as a chronicler, um, 
um, and especially given the, that you are a historian of, if I'm not mistaken, of, of re, you, you call yourself, at least I've seen that set of recent science. Is that? Yes. Um, and so how, 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 how does that, how do you, how, how, maybe you could talk a little bit about your role as, as that sort of person in, 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 the, in the, you know, in, in public discussions or as a public intellectual um, uh, to chronicle what's, what's going on uh, faithfully to your methodology and to your discipline. I mean, not taking sides, but influencing the discussion in some way. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I would say that a historian does more than just chronicle, because we also have to interpret, Mm -hmm. right? And that's an interpretation lies somewhere between simply writing down, you know, a timeline and making policy recommendations, right? So... What I try to do is make sense of the past and uh, and it, in this role, you know, talking about current events, to, to apply what we know from the past to situations of, of contemporary interest and, and relevance. And say, you know, for example, here are the here are the issues that people have had to cope with in analogous situations in the past. Here's here's what went right and what went wrong in medical genetics in the early 20th century. Here's where we see you know some things that we really wish we hadn't done, and here's some things that they actually did right. You know, so so you know we can't. Just sweep it all under the rug, and we can't. And we also shouldn't just just damn the whole thing and seal it off behind a wall and never look at it again and say, "Well, we're just past that, right?" And so, what a historian of recent science who's trying, to, like myself, who's trying to engage with with the public, with policymakers, with scientists, such as you, what we try to do is is open conversations to talk about continuity and change, right? How is the past, what's similar between the past and the present and what's different, right? What are the things that, what are the themes that run through the history and then how do the different conditions of time and and place make those themes manifest differently? So it's not just a matter of history repeating itself, but rather, uh, you know, taking a a given theme and say, okay, how does that theme apply in this kind of place, and how is that different from from that other time? Right. Well, I I think uh, you you have shown that in your in your book on. from 2012, and I'm sure that in your coming work on on uh, origins of life, uh, you will also bring those changes uh, and illuminate them. Um, and uh, I want to thank you very much for for talking with me today. Um, oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you, Nathaniel good. Comfort. Okay. Have a good day. Okay, you too.